I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome everybody uh, on behalf of Fred Kemp, our intrepid president, and uh, the entire Atlantic Council family. It's a great honor to welcome you here to this afternoon's launch event of the Rafiq Hariri Center's Task Force on the Future of Iraq. Now, right off the top, let me say that uh, Rafiq Bizri, a member of our executive committee, is here, and we thank you and uh, what you have done to make this center a reality and its work uh, so recognized. Uh, I'd also like to offer thanks uh, to both Conrad Adenauer Stiftung and the American University of Iraq for their generous support of the Iraq Task Force. Before we begin, let me just note that our event here is on the record and is being live streamed online. For those of you on Twitter, I encourage you to follow using hashtag futureiraq. I'm delighted to welcome our distinguished group of speakers. We have two former ambassadors to Iraq, Ryan Crocker, chair of the Iraq Task Force, and Jim Jeffrey and a former commander of the Iraq and NATO training mission, Lieutenant General Michael Barbaro, thank you so much for joining us here today. With four civil wars in 2015 and ISIS's rapid growth over the past 18 months, the Middle East continues to be fraught with conflict and instability that has exacerbated security concerns around the world. We're here today to do a deeper dive on one particular state, Iraq that holds immense geopolitical and strategic importance, both in the Middle East and more broadly across global communities. As defeating ISIS dominates the agenda for many countries in the Middle East, including Iraq, it is crucial that we also take into account the deep-seated dynamics pre-existing in each of these countries that will need to be addressed when crafting sustainable solutions for peace. Inspired by the ongoing work of the Atlantic Council's Middle East Strategy Task Force that is chaired by Executive Vice Chair of the Atlantic Council, Steve Hadley, and Honorary Board Director, Madeleine Albright, the Iraq Task Force seeks to go beyond the defeat of ISIS and conduct substantial research into the Iraqi case. The task force will bring together a broad array of regional stakeholders and international experts to collaborate in identifying ways to stabilize the Iraqi state, reconcile its warring communities, and build the basis for long-term stability in the country. The group will think through the demobilization of Iraq's militias, the future of Iraq's Sunni community, the prospects for Kurdish independence, paths to improving Iraq's governance and economic performance, and plans for the reintegration of internally displaced people. To do so, we, we've gathered a team of 25 of the world's leading experts on Iraqi politics, chaired by Ambassador Ryan Crocker, who we'll hear from shortly. The work of the task force will culminate with a book and a series of policy-oriented papers, complete with recommendations for governments and the international community. Both the Middle East Strategy Task Force and the Iraq Task Force are part of a broader Atlantic Council effort to inject strategic thinking on U.S. foreign policy, with the specific aim to empower the international community and regional player, players with long-term approaches to respond to the challenges within the Middle East. We hope to develop a comprehensive set of policy recommendations for the long-term support of 
Iraq's stabilization in time for the transition to a new administration here in the United States. So without further ado, I'd like to turn over to Atlantic Council Senior Fellow and Executive Director of the Iraq Task Force, Nusaiba Yunus, who will introduce our distinguished group of panelists <coughs> and moderate today's discussions. Nusaiba. Thank you. Well, thank you all very much for joining us for the launch of the Task Force on the Future of Iraq. Um, it's really been a passion project of mine for a long time, and a lot of you have given me advice and guidance on how to put this together and which questions to really focus on and, and, and how to move forward with this so that it's the most useful that it can be, both to the US government in terms of our devising of a long-term strategy for the stabilization of Iraq beyond the defeat of ISIS, uh, but also to develop useful policy tools to share with the Kurdish regional government and with the Iraqi government in Baghdad. Uh, and we really aim to bring policy measures to, to the forefront, learning from the mistakes we've made and also from the lessons we've learned from over a decade of US involvement in Iraq. And I have with me a distinguished panel who have years of experience in Iraq uh, and who I'm going to ask them difficult, reflective questions uh, to try and draw out how we can really bring lessons learned to bear on our future engagement with Iraq, which frankly, as much as we've tried uh, to turn away from, it, it really is a country in which we need to have long-term uh, strategic engagement. Uh, and so the, the more foresight and strategic thinking we can bring to bear on that, uh, the better for us all. So I'm going to start with Ambassador Crocker. Ambassador, you were ambassador to Iraq between 2007 and 2009, which as we all know was a period of really quite dramatic stabilization in the country. When you reflect on that time, how do you account for the shift from violence to stabilization and the shift from a very you know, parts of the population being very alienated from the political process towards their willingness to really take part and to give Baghdad a chance. Well, thanks, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. Let me just say a word about our, our larger purpose, the um, Future of Iraq Task Force. It's um, uh, axiomatic that Iraq will have a future. Uh, the question is whether the U.S. is going to be part of that future, uh, seeking to shape, channel, guide processes uh, uh, to a better place than what we're seeing right now. Uh, uh, I approach this um, with these 25 experts that have been assembled, all of whom know more about Iraq than I do. Uh, it may not sound like it as we pontificate up here, but as we go into the task force, it is with a very open mind to, to, to take a fresh look, um, uh, make a series of assessments to challenge each other as we do it, and then try to provide something useful to a new administration. We uh, arguably over the last um, dozen years first did too much, as a, as a government, and now, arguably, are doing far too little. Uh, so this will be our effort, uh, uh, nestled within the uh, uh, fantastic work that um, 
uh, Steve Hadley and Madeleine Albright did on the, on the, uh, the Middle East uh, to, to, to try to provide a way forward for a new administration which is going to need it. Um, of course, everything good that happened uh, in 0709 was entirely due to me. Uh, you know, there's, a, there, there, there's nothing like being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I think, I think uh, Jim and Mike would agree with that. Uh, uh, I, I think there were a number of factors that led to the um, achievement of relative stability and relative inclusivity uh, on the political level. Uh, uh, the surge really counted. Uh, I, was, I got there in the early days of, um, of the surge in the beginning of 2007 and, and could watch it work in, uh, in districts like Dora. Uh, that was my first, uh, my first week there. I, I went to Dora just as the surge troops were moving in. Uh, a completely devastated neighborhood um, uh, where the only protection uh, the largely Sunni inhabitants thought they would ever have from marauding Shia militias was Al-Qaeda. Um, and with the surge troops, not just the number of troops, but the change in mission, um, uh, protection of the population, uh, you, you could see how uh, life came back to parts of Dora because we had uh, a small operating base there. Um, so the surge and the sense of security it brought um, uh, to populations primarily in Baghdad but really around mm -hmm. the country uh, made a, a huge difference. Uh, with that, politics could be workable again. Uh, uh, I worked obviously very closely with Nouriel Maliki and others. Um, uh, Prime Minister Maliki obviously came from a certain background and had a certain worldview uh, uh, called uh, highly sectarian, but he, he knew what he needed to do for the country. Uh, I had mentioned to, to Jim over lunch, uh, we taught the Iraqis a lot of bad things. Um, maybe the worst was the budget supplemental process. Oh, God. Um, uh, but Iraq's first budget supplemental in uh, September 2007, $250 million, went to the Sunni province of Anbar. Uh, uh, it took a fair amount of lifting with the prime minister to get him there, but he could see that how important that was uh, to pull Iraq out of the chaos of civil war and provide at least the hope of a unified country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so. Again, security, 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 but security to, to trigger a political process. And we saw that in the course of, of those two years, uh, 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 how uh, deals could be done in parliament, bringing Kurds, Sunnis, and Shia together uh, uh, for, for compromises. Compromises they could not quite fashion on their own but if the U.S. was in the middle of it, getting something here, giving something there, we could help them put it together. Uh, mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. certainly start with that, that, uh, uh, that bias, if you will, and I'd be interested in what Jim thinks about it, being there at a later time. Mm -hmm. We really were the essential middleman mm -hmm. when I was there. Mm -hmm. uh, 
for lots of reasons, uh, the horrors of the Saddam years, uh, uh, the unspeakable tragedy of the civil conflict uh, uh, in 06 and early 07, compromise just wasn't something Iraqis were going to do. But we could, we could get in the middle of it and, and make those things happen. Uh, with the Kurds, uh, I would have interesting conversations with the Kurdish leaders at that time. Um, uh, and when they got way too interesting, um, uh, I, I'd say, hey, guys, remind me, what were the very worst of times uh, for Iraqi Kurdistan? And there would be some debate because there were a lot of really bad times in Iraqi Kurdistan, but, you know, almost always they'd, they'd, uh, they'd uh, come back to the onfall. Uh, you know, the awful um, virtual genocide or attempted genocide of Saddam against the Kurdish people. And I'd say, right, so what was the best of times? Well, that one was easy. Right now, today, this is it. It's never been so good. And I'd say, right, so don't blow it. <laughs> you know, in other words, don't overreach. Um, uh, recognize that the best future at that time for uh, the Kurdish region was within a unitary Iraqi state um, uh, that uh, would not threaten Kurdish security and would provide a solid economic basis through the 17% uh, budget share. Um, so again, from a, a pretty bleak beginning at, in early 07, and you know, there was no guarantee that surge was going to work. Uh, I, I remember watching the casualty counts go up. Uh, you know, God, Mike, you, you lived that. Uh, uh, when we hit over 120 dead in June of 07, um, that, that number still sticks with me. Every one of them a person, every one of an American. And I could not say at the end of June 2007, as we looked at those figures, that their sacrifice was going to turn the tide. Um, but it did. It, it, it brought that... Um, that basic security on which we could then build um, the various political and economic structures. Thank you. Um, ambassador Jeffrey, you were there as ambassador later under the Obama administration. Could you reflect a little on what Ambassador Crocker has said? Under the Obama administration, was the US still prepared to act as a middleman in kind of doing the diplomatic heavy lifting and bringing uh, the, the various components of Iraqi society together? Um, or, or had the US mission in Iraq really changed by the time you were ambassador? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think I'll start with a, uh, a explanatory story and it involves Ryan. He may not remember this, but before he went out there in 2007, he came and visited us in NEA and he walked into my office. I looked up at him and I said, Ryan, only you can save Iraq. I won't repeat and embarrass his very pithy answer, but many of you who know him can imagine how he responded. So we had a good laugh and went on to other things. But to some degree, uh, Ryan, Dave Petraeus, uh, George W. Bush, and most importantly, the Iraqi people saved Iraq in that period. And uh, Every day, when you look around the rest of the Middle East, Iraq is actually looking a bit better compared to uh, it's got a constitutional system, it has a democracy, it actually votes. People who uh, don't do well are driven out as prime minister. That's happened repeatedly. Uh, and it's managed to stem the tide of ISIS. 
But uh, something has changed totally apart from the United States. Leave that for another discussion. Something has changed in the world since that period of time. For three decades, this is Walter Russell Mead more than Jim Jeffrey, but it's worth thinking about. Uh, for almost three decades after 1987-89, we didn't face real existential major global or even major regional challenges. So we dealt with each problem, be it North Korean nukes or Taiwan incursions or Afghanistan or Plan Colombia or Iraq as a sui generis specific problem that we would beaver away at within a generally positive world. Uh, things have been shifting, not in our direction, particularly, but not only in the Middle East, for the past three or four years. And Iraq was getting caught up in that when I was there. In terms of the Obama administration, um, President Obama came in, I mean, he ran famously, because we're revisiting the whole thing now, on a uh, uh, opposition to Hillary Clinton's vote in 2002 uh, on going into Iraq. He was a guy who wouldn't have who voted against it uh, and who uh, uh, was going to withdraw all the troops. Well, actually, he didn't have to withdraw all the troops because, in fact, uh, uh, the U.S. government had agreed in 2008 in the um, security agreement that we would withdraw all of our troops by the end of 2011. So President Obama came in with a double success story. Iraq was relatively stable and uh, fighting and particularly casualties, both Iraqi and American, were way, way down. And uh, we were on a glide path to uh, withdraw all of our troops by 2011. Uh, he went to uh, Camp Lejeune and gave a speech in February 2009 where he essentially endorsed the entire uh, Bush administration program for Iraq, calling for a country that would be uh, secure, stable, an ally and friend of the United States, and a partner in the struggle against uh, terrorism. Uh, he did caveat that a little bit by saying that we couldn't be on every street corner, we couldn't solve every problem, that the Iraqis would have to step up, but he was uh, quite, uh, he was quite optimistic about that. Uh, that attitude remained through 2010, 2011. He saw Iraq as a success. He saw Iraq that was something that was kind of fixed. His focus was on Afghanistan. Uh, and Iraq was kind of on automatic pilot. Some of us who had had some experience there previously were concerned that things might shift in a bad direction, given some of the clouds that were uh, looming in the region, uh, particularly from Iran. And uh, so we recommended, myself and Lloyd Austin, uh, at the end of 2010, after a government was finally formed, that uh, we try to keep troops on. And at the end of January, beginning of February, uh, President Obama personally took the decision to do that. And uh, after the usual fits and starts that characterize our government, uh, we announced that at the beginning of June publicly to the American people that lo and behold, we were actually gonna try to keep some troops on. So uh, ending America's war in Iraq and bringing all the troops home stop being the policy. The policy for a brief period of time was to keep troops on. Now, President Obama was a good sport about that. He was willing to try. Uh, we can argue, uh, and Michael Gordon 
lays out all the arguments in his book about the period, uh, how much President Obama's heart was in it, but I had my instructions to try to negotiate it. And in the end, the Iraqi parties agreed that we could keep our military personnel on, but, and this is also indicative, they did not want to send uh, a status of forces agreement that would grant American troops immunities to the Iraqi parliament because they flat thought that it would just blow up and it wouldn't get passed. Our independent assessment looking at polls and other things were that uh, uh, they were probably right and secondly that in a non-emergency time when the Iraqis didn't feel a major security threat Getting a piece of paper from the prime minister, which is what we have now for our troop presence in country, was possibly not a smart idea. So from my standpoint, regretfully, uh, we wound up executing the 2008 plan and got all of our troops out at the end of 2011. Now, the Obama administration did not walk away from Iraq. We had a very uh, ambitious plan to use the embassy as a platform, uh, ironically, a week before Mosul fell, President Obama uh, cited it as the model when he was going to withdraw all the troops from Afghanistan of how to do things after 2016. Then A, Mosul fell and Afghanistan got in trouble, so he dropped that model as he well should have because the model didn't really work. And I could go into for hours all of the details on how we would use special forces and the various elements of American power and training and FMS programs and everything. It was well thought out. The problem is if you do not have boots on the ground, if you do not have an American military presence in a potentially dangerous and difficult place, Washington's ability to do hard things, to focus on a very important, but from Washington's standpoint, ever more peripheral issue that is in the green or quasi-green category, drops and drops and drops. Some of that's my fault, some of that is Washington's fault, a good bit of it was Maliki's fault and other people in Iraq. But the point is, we could have done better after 2012, and we didn't. To move on to talk about the popular mobilization forces. So we now have uh, an, possibly 60,000, possibly 80,000 uh, Shiite militiamen under arms in, in Iraq, and they've helped in the fighting in some areas. In other areas, the US has tried very hard to keep them out of the fighting. Uh, but, but whatever role we think they've played in the war against Islamic State, uh, all parties in Iraq are very worried about what the future of the PMUs is going to be in the country. Uh, how can they be demobilized, disarmed, or properly integrated into the state's military structure? And we have had experience with uh, dealing with Shiite militias previously in Iraq. And I wanted to, to turn to General Barbero. Uh, we've talked before about this, and, and General Barbero refers to the March Madness, which is uh, in March 2008, when Prime Minister Maliki decided fairly unilaterally that the time was now to go after the Sadrists and launched a, a military campaign that could well have failed uh, if we hadn't have uh, backed him up with US military support. Reflecting on 
the Iraqi government's experience in dealing with militias and in bringing them back under control, uh, and, and, and particularly with some of the Badrists, integrating them into the Iraqi security forces and, and into the interior ministry, police forces and other structures. What do you think are some of the lessons, General Barbero, that we could learn as we prepare to confront uh, a, the very, very large challenge of trying to deal with these PMUs? Thanks, Nasabi. If I could just comment on the overall lessons learned from that period and then talk about the, the militia uh, issue. Uh, I think as I look back at that period, it was what a lesson learned that we should take forward as we look to a new strategy or, or a strategy for the future. I think we had a, an alignment, not perfectly, but a, an alignment of ends, ways, and means, which is for a strategist, that's the essence, right? Uh, we, we understood the ends were very clear, stop the violence, secure the population, set the conditions to allow Iraqi structures and institutions to mature, allow, allow Iraqi security forces to move to the lead. Uh, the means, that was a surge, uh, 40,000 additional troops. The ways were what uh, were critical. Um, live among the population, don't drive to work, live and, and disperse. And, and, and separate the reconcilables from the irreconcilables. And when you identify the irreconcilables, ruthlessly destroy them. Um, and also, uh, key to that is, is um, you know, understanding that it's about the population and securing the population. So I think ends, ways, and means is always uh, the, the standard by which you test a strategy. And I think they were in alignment during that period. So to answer your specific question, I think um, we, you, we make a mistake when we lump together these PMFs or militias. I think there are nationalist militias, and you know, an Iraqi friend in Baghdad a couple weeks ago described this to me, and there are, frankly, uh, Iranian surrogate militias. And they seem pretty confident that the nationalist militias, the, the Iraqis who answered the call, they could be brought back into the fold in some measure, they were reconcilable. And not that they, they could be brought in and made part of the institutions. The, 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 the huge concern, and the question is, how do you put this genie back in the bottle? Are the, are the Iranian-sponsored, Iranian sur surrogate militias? And we know they are the same, some of the same characters um, as we dealt with in the past. And that is the question. I mean, Dash, we're grinding away at them. You could see a way forward there. Um, the internal uh, problems in Iraq are deep and have been have deepened during this period, but you could see, you can still see a way forward there. But these uh, these militias that are aligned closer, I think, close more closely aligned with Iran than they are with Iraq. How do you how do you contain them and get them back into the bottle? As I said, and I think that is the the greatest threat to Iraqi stability and security mm -hmm. moving forward. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an open question. Yeah. How do you do that? Thank you. Um, Ambassador Crocker, if we could continue talking about, about how to rein in the militias. I mean, you've had extensive experience, not only in Iraq, but also in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and also Lebanon straight after the Taif Accords, uh, which talk about trying to rein in the diverse militias. I mean, can you reflect on some of the lessons that come to mind uh, in terms of drawing down these militia forces, particularly in the context of a weak central government. Uh, 
You know, when Prime Minister Maliki was launching military action against the Sadrists, he was doing so on the basis of pretty strong electoral support. He, you know, he had unequivocally the backing of, you know, a significant proportion of the Iraqi people in a way that, for all his good intentions, I'm not sure we could say the same about Prime Minister Abadi. So how, you know, how does a weak central government really go about beginning to confront some of these armed actors, many of whom have quite clearly got political ambition? As Mike was uh, reflecting on that momentous time, March, April 2008, I was thinking about an event in Basra much more recently, which was the uh, effort to deploy uh, Iraqi forces into Basra to bring some order as the militias ripped the city apart, and the Prime Minister had to withdraw that unit. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty stark contrast between, um, between 08 and now. Uh, you know, one thing that uh, those of us who our practitioners try to do is not get trapped by our own experience that because I saw this and that happened, therefore it will apply everywhere else. But it's really hard. Um, I, I spent um, six difficult years in Lebanon on, on two tours, uh, the second one as ambassador. And I, um, I have to say I see some parallels to um, what took place in Lebanon uh, to, and what's going on in e Iraq, uh, weak central governments. Um, Iran playing a very, very significant role. Uh, uh, you know, anyone who thought that the Iran nuclear deal was going to herald a new era of um, uh, a gentler, kinder, kinder Iran in the region uh, is nuts. Um, and what you're seeing now, whether it's in Iraq or in Syria, is, is the indication of that. Because what you're seeing now in Iraq uh, uh, is the old Iranian playbook that they began to write in the early 80s in the immediate wake of the uh, Israeli invasion. Uh, when they, working with Syria, created what became Hezbollah. Uh, uh, I, I mentioned uh, trying to avoid being um, captured by your own experience, mine involved being um, a survivor of the 1983 bombing of the embassy uh, in Beirut, and I was there when the Marine barracks went up uh, uh, in October of that year, all brought to you again by the combination of Iran, Syria, and a local proxy, um, uh, Hezbollah. So as Mike says, uh, the, the, um, uh, the PMU, the Hashid, uh, is not monochromatic. Uh, there are nationalist elements, but there are also clearly uh, uh, forces and individuals who are um, taking their instructions from, from Iran. Um, so this is going to be really, really, really hard um, uh, for, for the Iraqi government uh, to come to terms with. Again, if, if you cannot deploy um, a military unit in, into uh, Basra, maintain it, and establish order, uh, which Maliki could do in 08 with our help, um, frankly, you're in trouble. Um, 
uh, in a sense, uh, a way forward might come through the excesses of these militias. Uh, uh, by all accounts, uh, Basra is not a very fun place to live right now um, because there is no rule of law. Uh, it, it's militia rule, uh, much as uh, Beirut was during my first tour. Um, and, and people will get sick of that. Uh, that may be an opportunity, uh, carefully crafted, uh, to start literally to gain some ground back. Uh, but this is going to be hard. Uh, as, as we withdrew politically and militarily, it didn't end a war. Um, it simply left the battlefield to our adversaries. Um, in this case, Iran, their proxies, um, in the center and south, um, and to Islamic State in the west. So um, uh, this will be a hugely difficult lift. And again, I, I, I see our, um, uh, our job in the months ahead as a task force in, in trying to first define the problem and its various dynamics in a methodical and comprehensive way, and then to set out some possible courses of action. Uh, uh, but this is going to be extremely difficult. Mm. Ambassador Jeffrey, if you could reflect a little more on what you see as Iran's end game in Iraq. If you compare the relationship between Maliki and the Iranians at the time when you were ambassador and how the relationship is now between the official Iraqi government, between Abadi and the Iranians versus these proxy forces, where do you think Iran really gets its power and influence from on the ground in Iraq? And what do you think they see as their medium-term goals? Yeah, uh, I think, again, uh, you have to take a step back, given the fact that we are in a different world than we were a few years ago, where we could look at Iran and Iraq as a separate thing. We have... As is obvious from looking at the papers, an Iran problem, I would say an Iran, Syria, Russia problem right now in the Middle East, that is the number one problem in the whole region, and considering we also have ISIS, that's saying a lot. Uh, and so the first thing is, what is Iran trying to do? Most, but not all, observers believe that it is trying to establish uh, something like a regional power position, unite all of the Shia, with a combination of, and here I would draw an analogy outside of the Islamic world, but uh, the early Soviet Union in the 1920s, which both had official diplomatic uh, relations as a state and a political ideological movement as a party. To quote Henry Kissinger on Iran some years ago, Iran has to decide whether it's a country or a cause. Uh, as a cause, borders aren't too important. They all sort of meld together. And what is important is Iran's advancing its interests in the region all the way to the Mediterranean and both drawing support from and then coming to the rescue of its local allies, typically but not entirely uh, Shia Arabs. So uh, if that's the framework then you have to deduce from that how that applies to Iraq. Iraq is obviously particularly important to uh, Iran because it's a neighboring state. 
Uh, it was a source of one of its most searing modern experiences, the Iran-Iraq war. And you have the competing center of Shia Islam in Najaf in the south of the country. But in the state system, it's an independent state. In the world of the Middle East, it's an Arab state in a region that takes Arabness seriously. So uh, Iran doesn't have a totally free hand there. But again, as Ryan said, you have a phenomenon that is not all of that different from uh, Beirut. If you can have a weak government, if you can have major forces that are uh, able to bear arms, able to serve as a militia, and who are more loyal to Iran or Iranian surrogates than they are to the, their own government, then you're able to exercise tremendous influence. We see this every day. But uh, while I would rate Iran's influence in Iraq as higher than that of the United States, Iran's influence in Iraq and ours are not higher than the Iraqi peoples themselves. At the end of the day, uh, there's a push and pull. Now, to get to Maliki and Abadi, uh, again, Maliki had a lot of traits that uh, contributed to the rise of ISIS and the alienation of the Sunni Arabs and to some degree the Kurds. But as a relatively strong leader, uh, he would at times stand up to the Iranians. And I always got the feeling, and it was a good feeling, ironically, that he was trying to play us Americans and the Iranians off and balance each other. Uh, Prime Minister Abadi is a man who is uh, sympathetic to the United States, sympathetic to the West, uh, but also an Iraqi patriot. And he has to be aware of what's happening uh, in his coalition, the Shia coalition, and what's happening in his country. And he's in a different position than Maliki was five years ago. Can I just add something? Yeah, of course. To be a little provocative here, uh, Jim touched on the uh, Iran-Iraq war, uh, something little remembered in this country, never to be forgotten in either Iran or Iraq. Uh, uh, you look at key figures in Iran today, mm -hmm. like Qasem Soleimani. Uh, he was commissioned just before the war started and went through the whole eight years of it, seven of them um, on or near the front. Um, well, if getting blown up once um, affects your worldview, think what um, seven years on a Western Front-like uh, uh, conflict will do to you. Um, as as you look at some of the players and as you look at what Iran is doing in Iraq with the militias, particularly in the Tikrit campaign, pushing them into um, uh, Sunni populated areas along with Revolutionary Guards, Iranians, uh, I, I would give you this hypothesis, uh, that, that Soleimani and others in the hierarchy in Iran are seeking to do now what they couldn't do in 1988, which is gain a definitive total victory over Iraq by fragmenting it. Um, because they're well on their way to bring in just that about. Uh, Islamic State does not threaten Iran. Uh, uh, Islamic State is actually a good foil for the Iranians and vice versa. Um, you know, use that as a rallying cry to 
mobilize the population and then control the mobilization. Uh, so that poison chalice that uh, Khomeini <coughs> famously said he had to drink from in 1988 uh, may now turn into the victory cup uh, for Qasem Soleimani and others of uh, 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 Khomeini's uh, uh, political heritage. So we can understand why Iran is pursuing this line of action to further its national security interests in Iraq. But of course, there are Iraqis, you know, we can debate how widespread this is, but there are Iraqis who work with the Iranians uh, in the furtherance of those interests. Uh, General Barbero, you, when you were working with, um, with, with General Petraeus, had a really fascinating opportunity to have an insight into some of these characters who've become very influential um, in Iraq today, potentially as conduits for Iranian influence. I wondered if you could give us a bit of an insight into some of these actors. What do they get out of the relationship with Iran? You know, how are they potentially manipulating that relationship for the furtherance of their own political goals, security goals, and social goals? Well, the one uh, interesting character um whom I was ordered to uh, meet with every week, and it was more like a trip to the dentist, was uh, uh, Hadi Al-Amri, who is head of the Badr Corps and very active and very aligned. Uh, you, you see on Iraqi TV, uh, Qasem Soleimani and uh, Hadi Al-Amri together all the time. And uh, back then it was obvious where his, he was, uh, um, where he received his marching orders and support um, and it's, it's on open display today. Uh, so it's, it's just a continuation of some of the, the trends we saw then. Um, but I, I would just say, as, as we look at, at towards a strategy and Iran's interest in, in Iraq, um, there are two facts. Whatever a future strategy um, is shaped, have to, you have to deal with Iran. They're a fact on the ground. They're a major player. But any notion that their interests are aligned with ours is, is they're aligned in an opposite direction. And, and to think that we can work with them and, and, and somehow merge our interests is, is totally false. And um, they, we must understand that. And we saw it back uh, throughout our time in Iraq in the past, and we, we must um, account for that in the future. Ambassador Jeffrey, just moving on to Turkey, you were ambassador to Turkey before moving on to Iraq. What do you think Turkey's strategic goals are in Iraq? And, and how would you assess the deployment late last year of 150 troops and 25 tanks into Bashika that caused a huge uproar uh, in Baghdad and elsewhere in Iraq? You know, what do you think their goals are around their possible uh, participation in the liberation of Mosul, certainly their ongoing training of Sunni troops in Peshmerga. Um, what are they trying to get at here? And, you know, the U.S. has been, has been long pressuring them uh, to get out of Bashika and, and to, to get out of the Iraq fight with, with less than, than great success. So could you explain a little bit where they might be coming from? Uh, I'll try. I don't think anybody, including Erdogan, can explain from day to day exactly what he's doing. But again, uh, and I won't do this a fourth or fifth time, I will come back to my initial uh, comments that uh, all of the actors in the region are acting 
through a different prism than they would have acted six or eight years ago. At that time, believe me, Turkey had interests in Iraq and they made it very apparent to us uh, in all kinds of comfortable and uncomfortable ways. But again, that was looking at a specific problem. Right now, Turkey, perhaps more than anybody else in the region except Saudi Arabia, is a believer in the reality of this Russian, Iranian, Syrian, Hezbollah, and add on some more potential allies uh, front. And it's actions, while informed by uh, some of their conceptions and misconceptions and experiences and maladventures in Iraq in the past, uh, are going to be in the context of dealing with that threat. To some degree, uh, on some days, I think they're doing all of this to try to provoke us to change our policy and to play a more active role dealing with that eventuality. Uh, other days, I think that what Erdogan is trying to do is to uh, find desperately allies uh, to his south. Obviously, he has a friend in the Kurdistan regional government. Of course, this uh, site is just to the west of it. There is a whole controversial gray area now that ISIS created in uh, mixed and Arab areas that when ISIS came in, the Iraqi army melted away the uh, KRG Peshmerga moved in, and uh, these areas uh, are also coterminous with parts of Nineveh province where you have a split among the Arab population. The former governor was driven out. He's allied with the Kurdistan regional government people and with the Turks. Uh, so this is partially, and we, we saw that when I was there, although not with tanks, uh, a very strong Turkish effort to play both the Kurdish card and the Sunni Arab card. And I think this is more of the same, but it has more of a strategic focus and Erdogan sees it as more existential. Thus the tanks and thus the refusal uh, to fold under our pressure and uh, Baghdad's pressure. Mm -hmm. Turning to some of the internal political dynamics in, in Iraq, um, Ambassador Crocker, General Barbaro said earlier, that there was a strong effort in 2007-8 to separate the reconcilables from the irreconcilables in the Sunni community. Do you think that effort has really happened this time around in our effort to defeat uh, the, the latest, worst reincarnation of Al-Qaeda in Iraq? Um, I'm glad you've turned back to Islamic State because uh, it gives me an opportunity to say just for the record here, and I think it's a, a premise of um, what this task force is all about. Uh, Islamic State is a symptom. Uh, it, it's not a cause. Uh, we in this country focus on the immediate. Uh, uh, Islamic State's pretty immediate, so let's make that the ultimate objective of everything we're trying to do in the region. Uh, that, uh, that way lies madness. I mean, it's, um, uh, you, you've got to get at the fundamental political issues, at least in Iraq, that led to its rise. Uh, uh, and that is a failure of governance, uh, which is something we're going to be looking at. Um, um, uh, an ascendancy of uh, partisan politics that uh, alienated uh, the Sunni community and Islamic State took advantage of it. Uh, uh, you know, again, I during my time there, part of what we were doing was that uh, full court press against what was Al then Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And um, we got about 90, 95% of the way there. Uh, but we could never quite 
get rid of them in parts of Mosul and on up the Euphrates River Valley where they could move back and forth uh, from Syria. Um, you know, why in Mosul? Because a lot of the residents there, you know, looked askance at Baghdad, looked askance at the Kurdish region, um, and that gave them just enough of a crevice to hang on. Uh, well, those crevices have now become canyons. Uh, and until the Iraqis, with obviously some help from outside, can start to fill in those canyons, um, we're not going to get rid of Islamic State. Just uh, yeah. uh, period. Now, you know, back at that time, and uh, uh, Mike was more directly involved than I was, uh, uh, there was a, a concerted effort to reach out to a whole lot of really nasty people. Um, uh, uh, again, as Dave Petraeus and I said, ad nauseum, but I'll say it again, uh, you, you know, you, you don't make peace with your friends. Uh, uh, so we talked to a lot of very bad actors uh, to see if we could shift them. And we did this in conjunction with the Iraqis, obviously. Uh, but also, frankly, to mess with their minds. Um, you know, some of the things we would tell them is, uh, you know, come in out of the cold. Um, you know, Abu Muhammad down, down the way did. You know, you should be like him. And the guy would say, that son of a bitch. <laughs> and then if we were lucky, he'd go kill Abu Muhammad and save us the trouble. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's, it is a somewhat rough game out there. Uh, and at the end of the day, there are a certain number of people who just have to be killed. Uh, those are the irreconcilables. Uh, but what you have to do is kind of know your, uh, uh, your landscape well enough uh, so that you are uh, killing the absolute minimum number of people and not creating a whole new set of enemies. Uh, uh, and frankly, I think you can only do that if you're very deeply engaged uh, on the ground um, where people are taking you seriously, both your allies and your adversaries, uh, and sadly, that is not the case for us now in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Ambassador Jeffrey, given where we are, we don't have the troop levels in Iraq, anything like it that we had back in 2007. The Iraqi government does not have, I mean, arguably does not have the political capacity to reach out to the reconcilable Sunnis uh, and certainly hasn't been able to push through a legislative agenda uh, that, that would show mm -hmm. that the government was very serious about re-engaging those Sunnis in the political process. You know, short of the carpet bombing approach advocated by Ted Cruz that would just generate an entirely new generation of radical actors, you know, how do we encourage from outside the re-engagement of those Sunni actors who can be brought back into the political system and who frankly need to be uh, if we're ever to have a chance of securing these areas once we militarily defeat ISIS. Yeah, to some degree that's actually going on. I mean, one of the uh, rays of sunlight in the whole ISIS 2014 thing was that much of Anbar province did not fall after Fallujah to ISIS, and the fall of Ramadi a year ago, uh, which was defended primarily by uh, 
Sunni Arab uh, Anba police, uh, some tribes people, and uh, Iraqi army units, which included uh, Sunnis, uh, that was more of a uh, goof up militarily than it was the sort of meltdown that you had in Mosul. And of course, uh, the city, uh, much devastated, has been retaken. Uh, and other places are being held by, again, Sunnis. And there is a tremendous amount. I mean, I saw that when I was out there a few months ago. There's a tremendous amount of uh, back and forth between the government and various Sunni groups. Uh, many of them are in exile now. Many of the, uh, well, the provincial governors, their uh, provincial councils have all fled. And they're involved. Uh, I don't think they're playing uh, the same role we saw before because they've essentially lost most of their territory. Uh, one difference with 2007, 2008, aside from you don't have the ubiquitous presence of the United States military, is that uh, in 2007, 2008, essentially everywhere, we had control of the population. That was a whole part of the uh, surge. And uh, therefore, you could carry this out. Uh, uh, General Casey talked incessantly about uh, reconciliables and irreconciliables back in 2005. He couldn't carry out that policy because we were not embedded on the ground and could actually discover the difference or get the kind of intelligence we could do. Without that, it's difficult. On the other hand, ISIS is such a uniquely evil organization. And while it has many former Ba'athist offices, it is also, in some respects, an alien force in Iraq that uh, I'm relatively hopeful that if you can get a military offensive going, uh, you'll find a way to uh, have some kind of preliminary uh, resolution like people are still working on up in Tikrit. But again, if this is replacing ISIS by an Iranian-dominated Baghdad, uh, you're going to be back in the same mess in the future. So it, it gets to the same question again. If I could just add to, to the comments of the ambassadors, um, you know, how, how do we deal with this uh, ISIS problem in, in the context of the Sunni population and bringing them into this, uh, uh, fully into this Iraqi enterprise of the future? Well, for, uh, tactically, it can be done. I mean, you, it, again, it goes to a strategy that matches ends, ways, and means. And you understand it's an ecosystem, it's a network, and you, and you attack the network, which starts with a, a very detailed and accurate intelligence understanding of the network, which um, it's questionable whether we have that now. And then you go ruthlessly to go after the full, every part of the network, leadership, suppliers, uh, foot soldiers, and then you go after the resources. So it's not exactly carpet bombing, and it's not uh, just stealing their oil or taking their oil from them. It is a very sophisticated understanding and, and putting the right, the right boots on the ground, intelligence, soft, precision strike to, to understand and attack the network. It can be done. But the, the more complex and more difficult question is, how do you incentivize a Sunni population to A, reject uh, this, this element, and then to then the harder question now is buy-in to uh, a government in, from Baghdad. And that's, that is uh, difficult. And you can't, I don't think we can impose that. We can help nurture it and hopefully set some conditions for it. But that is really the crux of it. How do you incentivize the Sunnis to reject uh, this and then, but more importantly, buy-in to a future in Iraq? And that's, yeah. that's tough. Yeah. 
staying with you, General Barbero, I want to turn and, and look at some of the tremendous capacity building efforts that the US has invested in in over, an, in over a decade mm. um, you know, of support for the Iraqi state. Um, you, from 2009 to 2011, were the senior US and NATO commander responsible for manning, training, equipping. I know where this is going. I've been asking this. Uh, wait a minute, weren't you the guy who was responsible for Iraqi security forces? I was there with you. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I worked for the ambassador. But, uh, it was all in great shape when I was yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, no. It's, it's, um, can you just reflect a little on what did and didn't work? And if we, you know, as we approach, uh, a continued effort to strengthen the Iraqi forces, mm -hmm. you know, how should we be approaching that today? Well, I think we underestimated some things in, 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 in Iraq, the, the, the significant uh, divisions in the society that had been in this pressure cooker controlled by Saddam Hussein for, for so many decades, this brutal regime. Um, and so we underestimated the effects of that. And uh, we, we knew that, and as we got into this, this was going to be a long, tough slog to build Iraqi security forces and really um, not change culture, make some significant changes, build a non-commissioned officer corps to us, which is natural. Sharing of intelligence, which had been a weapon, something you used against your adversary, but now is something you're supposed to share to defeat a common goal. So there are some, some, some things that were very tough challenges that we tried to overcome. We knew that um, this effort would go beyond 2011, 12, 13, uh, and, and said, you know, the minimum capabilities this force needed weren't going to be prepared, be in place to continue to go after the last 5% of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, so I think um, we, we underestimated initially how tough this was going to be. I was there in 2003 when we said, okay, well, let's just start building an army. And uh, it was, uh, it was uh, a Sisyphean uh, task to, to start to do that. And then, but, but I will say this, we, we understood the challenge and knew that it would take many more years to do this, as I think we're seeing. Um, so, um, I think we just, we, we did commit a lot of resources and we made some, ba some, some bad decisions. We also had th things on a path where you could see that uh, the Iraqi security forces could be capable at a period of time to be able to take on this immense challenge. And I think we just um, left yeah. at the wrong time. If, if yeah. I could interject something and this isn't a criticism of you, but it's something we have to think about. In revolutionary or civil war environments, not just in the Middle East, although it is full of uh, examples, but in Turkey and in uh, Russia and in Central Europe, from 1918 on, what you see is conventional armies and the structures and culture behind them have a hard time dealing in those environments. Who does well? I saw it in Vietnam, I saw it again, and we see it now in Iraq. It's the high-end guys, mm -hmm. the golden lions, and you know the sort of Nung and Montagnard guys that we had uh, doing things like uh, a Mac Sog and that sort of thing in Vietnam who are really good, and lots of local militias still wearing their black pajamas who are out there defending their hamlets. Uh, often, you have to put some focus onto that, and one of the things that uh, we keep on and uh, he also uh, embraces himself, Prime Minister Abadi, is this idea of recruiting 
uh, Sunni locals into the popular uh, mobilization units. Uh, I think the latest is a 25,000 person uh, element, the uh, plan for a National Guard failed in Parliament. Uh, but there are tribal levies fighting right now in Anbar, and there are people being recruited and trained by us there and in the north as well. So some of that is actually working out, and with the capabilities of the U.S. military to train those people um, and uh, their, their motivation, because these seem to be motivated people, uh, a lot can be done. Yeah, I mean, we have something like 10,000 Sunnis currently under arms, uh, but many, many more who, even without the progress being made in Baghdad, who want to fight and who can't get an audience in Baghdad and who'll get an audience with the KRG, but will only be supported by the KRG if they're absolutely deemed to not be a threat in any of those disputed territories that the KRG has taken in the last year. So, you know, certainly compared to the militia, the Sunni militia forces that we saw in 2007, you know, more towards 100,000. Mm -hmm. You know, we're still mm -hmm. at 10 with a ceiling of 25, but really no one uh, particularly motivated to vet and approve and arm and pay those fighters. Um, moving on to, you know, continuing the theme of, of capacity building, Ambassador Crocker, we've seen protests in Iraq on and off for years, but certainly since last summer, uh, not about ISIS, about the lack of electricity, about problems with sanitation, water, education, healthcare services. And we have tried to build capacity in the oil ministry, in the electricity ministry, uh, to bring transparency and, and standards, international standards of governance. You know, where we have succeeded, what has been... Uh, you know, what has been the magic ingredient and where we haven't succeeded on all these other, uh, on all these other efforts, you know, should we be giving up on, on those sorts of governance supporting projects or, or should we be doing something radically differently? Like, like so many other things, uh, uh, a huge, huge problem. Um, and it's something we're going to be looking at in great detail in the months ahead, uh, the, the whole question of governance um, and capacity. Uh, hardly a secret that uh, endemic corruption uh, is, is a cancer now in uh, Iraqi society. Uh, uh, you know, and I you know, don't pretend to know the ins and outs of it to any degree, but talking to uh, uh, Iraqi friends from all communities, uh, it's a pretty constant theme. And sadly, I, I have come to wonder if, um, if, you know, let's say good news, bad news. There, there may be one tie uh, that binds together uh, Sunni, Shia, and Kurdish elites. That's good. The bad news is, um, uh, they're all making a whole lot of bucks out of um, out of the current uh, the current system, and that makes it very very hard uh, to reform. If uh, if the powers that be um, are um, uh, making a a whole lot of money out of the current system, the incentives for changing that system uh, uh, are, are few and far between. And then you add to that. Uh, 
you know, actors like Iran and their proxies really aren't that interested in seeing good governance, and particularly not interested in seeing the consistent rule of law, uh, because that works against their interests. So, um, you know, all of this uh, plays into a huge part of the challenges Iraq currently faces. Does that mean you throw up your hands and, and say nothing can be done? No, no, of course not. Uh, but I, I think uh, one has to be modest in expectations. Um, um, one has to understand that uh, uh, probably at the top of the list of things that the United States or any other outside power um, is not going to fix is the quality of internal governance. Uh, we can help Iraqis committed to a better future, identify the problems, and then uh, uh, look at localized solutions. Um, and I, I think an area in particular um, uh, where that's important would be in the oil sector. That, that is the engine of the economy, obviously. The Iraqis have a long history of running their own oil industry. They, they uh, uh, at least have a memory of how to do this. Um, uh, it's something that uh, we're doing down at Texas A&M, incidentally. Um, uh, we've got a lot of Iraqis in our petroleum engineering department uh, uh, who not only go back with the skills uh, necessary to, to run a successful oil business, they've also probably absorbed something of the way um, governments and their societies interact, which we hope will be to the long-term good. So I think it's looking first as in so much else, identifying the problem, um, and a team of American experts isn't going to do that. It means working with, uh, uh, with Iraqis, uh, and then start figuring out where you can move and where you can't. Um, uh, there will be no across-the-board fix to this. Uh, that I can cheerfully predict. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think there can be incremental progress. If I could just add. Yes. To this, this immense challenge that Ambassador Crocker described is the, the, the new challenge of the utter devastation of these occupied areas. It's, um, the situation in Anbar, I think, has been underreported, but uh, security forces decimated, infrastructure destroyed, 75 schools destroyed, 250 damaged to the point they can't be used, uh, and on and on. So, what? Just think of what that portends for Mosul and Nineveh after two plus years of brutal occupation where they're going to fight to the end. So it's, it's just going to be tougher as uh, liberating these areas as we continue to grind away at them. And what we find there is just going to exacerbate this, um, this lack of basic services and, and infrastructure, and especially in areas that need it worse, the Sunni areas that you're trying to convince to uh, align themselves with uh, a government in Baghdad, it's an immense challenge that we need to face and, and take on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the devastation that we've seen uh, in Ramadi and Tikrit and that, that, we can, um, uh, that we can imagine will take place in Mosul poses a huge challenge at a time when the Iraqi government and the KRG is struggling intensively with uh, the collapse in oil prices uh, and with the costs of running the war against Islamic State. Um, can we use financial uh, contributions that, and, and uh, infusions of, of weapons and of training 
to the Iraqi government and to the KRG, can we use those uh, contributions that are very important to make, but can we use them as leverage, uh, as part of this effort to make a dent uh, in the corruption that we see uh, and, and to, and, and to incentivise a greater push towards the focus on rectifying some of these governance problems? Uh, I was hoping for a chance to jump in on this because I have some... Uh, uh, hard-earned views. One is, uh, we can rebuild things. Uh, we did Fallujah after we took that place apart, and uh, it's something that the United States can do, or the Iraqis can do. Uh, it requires money, but as long as somebody isn't out there trying to blow it up as you're doing it, it's a whole other problem, but assuming that you've got the security situation, which is the first uh, priority under control, you can, uh, you can do that. Uh, Iraqis will also be able to, as Ryan said with the oil industry, uh, run a lot themselves and come to us for the expertise uh, to augment and reinforce what they're doing, and that's been a huge success. Uh, other things they did, while you know, we, 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 we were horrified at it because it undercut our whole electricity program, which we put an enormous amount of effort into, was the neighborhood generators. Now, I can cite a thousand reasons why this is uneconomical, stupid, diverts oil, and et cetera, et cetera. It's how a lot of people, it's how Baghdad was lit up. And, it, and we were always talking about, we want to encourage entrepreneurial activity. Boy, that was entrepreneurial activity. Uh, and that gets to it. No, we can't do that. It won't work. First of all, if we can generate enough support in this place, Washington, to provide weapons or to provide you know, economic redevelopment and relief and such, there's a huge strategic reason for that, and we cannot make that, hold that hostage to uh, pressuring them. Plus, people don't like to be told what to do. If Iraqis want, decide that corruption is so bad that they're going to end it and they need some advice on how to do that, they know our telephone number. But if we fly in there, and boy, I sort of saw that in 2004, with every single American, uh, a, a sort of clone of every single American institution, NGO, a pressure group here in Washington, and then individual actors like Newt Gingrich on top of that, coming in with their 20 good ideas on how to fix Iraq and trying to field that and deploy that, uh, it, it doesn't have the intended effects. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> how, how true that is. Um, General Barbero, you've said that you no longer believe that the forces pulling Iraq together are greater than the forces pushing Iraq apart. Can you explain where your shift in, in thinking has come from? Yeah, and I've, and I've just recently returned from Baghdad, so I'd like to be able to modify that uh, a little. But I, you know, even in the, the beginning of 2007, the Ambassador Crocker described, you know, 30, month of, I think, February, 34 car bombs in Baghdad alone, uh, an enormous Iraqi casualties, and then, of course, the, the investment in U.S. casualties. You always felt that the forces pulling Iraq together, holding Iraq together were stronger mm -hmm. than these ones pulling it apart that there is a sense of Iraqi nationalism which, which would prevail. And it wasn't being an optimist, it was, it was just taking a look at it and, and I think hopefully being a realist. Uh, but the, in, the, in the last few years, the, the sectarian divisions, of what we used to call fault lines, you know, where, where we would impose our, ourselves to try to hold, hold things together or set the conditions for it to be them, to be reconciled, I think have become so deep. I've heard, you know, I was in um, Kurdistan right after the um, 
the ISIS advance. Uh, and I heard comments, um, why should we fight for the Sunnis when they wouldn't even fight for themselves? Um, Christians never, never, they are not going back. Um, the Sunni Shia, the, 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 um, the you know, what, what I think some Sunnis will tell you the ethnic cleansing in some of these areas where these militias are now moving into. So my concern is that these divisions have become so deep that it, it would be, it's questionable if uh, we can hold this entity Iraq, or this Iraq, if Iraqis can hold this entity called Iraq together. Ambassador Crockett, you, you've said publicly that you think the fragmentation of the state system in the Middle East would be catastrophic. Would you include in that, you know, Kurdish independence? Um, the lines that were drawn on the map about 100 years ago, um, not by the people um, whose lives they proceeded to define, but by European statesmen at, in uh, Versailles and Sevres, um, have had amazing durability. And I think one tries to redraw them at great peril. Um, um, certainly, that is what Islamic State is trying to do, uh, literally, uh, uh, in their sweep through um, uh, Iraq, uh, uh, taking Mosul and, and uh, uh, a lot of other real estate, they actually took time out to obliterate border posts, um, just to erase literally the, the notion of um, uh, these 100-year-old borders. Um, I, I do not, to put it mildly, see anything good uh, coming from that process. Um, and again, this is part of the conversation I used to have uh, with uh, my Kurdish friends. Um, you know, I certainly, as an outsider, as well as an outsider, can understand it. I understand Kurdish aspirations, uh, particularly after what they've been through. Um, um, but that was part of my don't blow it. Uh, these are the best of times. Uh, uh, to, to move toward juridical independence um, uh, in, in northern Iraq, or to make it even more extreme, across through northern Syria, I, I think can, can trigger a whole new uh, wave of, um, uh, of violence in the area. We're, we already see what the, Kur the Turks are saying and doing uh, as the, the Kurds move toward Azaz in, in northern Syria. Uh, um, you know, if there's uh, one thing uh, Turks, Iraqis, and Iranians agree on, it is no independent Kurdistan. So uh, as, as bad as things are, this is an axiom I learned long ago in the Middle East, as bad as things are today, they can always get worse. Uh, and that would be a great way of making them worse. Just to push you a little on that, I mean, it seems like the relationship between the KRG and certainly the KDP and the Erdogan government I mean, is stronger than ever. Uh, and do you think that Turkey would would risk its economic ties and its deep political ties with the KDP by blocking a move to independence? And just practically speaking, if the Kurds were to have this referendum and declare independence, what would be the catastrophic results that you would foresee? Well, I defer to Jim on this. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, your, your name is something I've always associated with catastrophe. catastrophe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, and indeed, it is precisely those um, business ties, if you will, between um, the KDP and, um, and Erdogan uh, that may be the best bulwark against such a step being taken. Um, uh, but, I, you know, while uh, certain elements of the Turkish ascendancy may be making good money out of uh, oil dealings with the Kurds, um, I, I would find it hard to believe, Jim, that um, that would translate into a, a passive Turkish stance if the Kurds formally declared independence. I'll let you have the final word on that. Um, yeah, uh, one, um, there is the right of self-determination, and you always have to keep that in this very uh, broad mix. Secondly, the specific relationship between Kurdistan and the rest of Iraq is something that the Kurds, who are serious players, have their own army, their own borders, their own uh, economy, uh, are going to be major players in. Uh, three, given all that we've talked about today, uh, any Kurdish leader who doesn't consider the reserve parachute of declaring independence, as th if things turn even more mm -hmm. chaotic, uh, is not doing his or her job. Now, I'll get to your question after all of those caveats. Uh, a number of difficult things can happen. One is, uh, with the wink of an eye, uh, Kurdistan is exporting 600,000 barrels a day, some of it from uh, the Northern Oil Company, which is a Baghdad operation out of Kirkuk. Uh, for many very complicated reasons, Baghdad, while pushing an alternative scheme involving the famous 17% and such is kind of okay with that. An independent Kurdistan, I'm not so sure. And that oil goes on international markets and it can be challenged and has been challenged. Uh, secondly, uh, we had an incident about two months ago where uh, the Russians decided that they wanted to fire some cruise missiles from you know one of their lakes uh, uh, into uh, Syria. And they had Baghdad close down the airspace over Kurdistan for several days. This had a huge impact on international air travel. That's the problem. Uh, Kurdistan's semi-international status with their own contracts with oil companies, with international flights going in and out and everything, is dependent upon them having some sort of legal status or legal tolerance. If you pull the plug on that, you have to rack and stack all these various attributes of a state and figure out how would you deal with that. The first and most obvious thing is you need the absolute cooperation of Turkey, but that might not be enough. All the Turks in the world couldn't change the airspace closure. And all the Turks in the world can't get people to lift oil from Jehan. Thank you. I'm going to throw this open to questions now. We've covered a huge range of uh of topics. I'm going to start here with uh, Henri Barki, and then I'll move to Barbara Slavin. Um, that was a low blow. <laughs> and could you introduce yourself, Henri? The Kurds' face is dropping lower and lower. Uh, Henri Barki from the Woodrow Wilson Center. Um, you, you said, Ambassador Cocker, you said that the Iranians had a game plan for Iraq, and it was essentially to fracture the state and to divide it. So two questions for you, I mean, in relation to that. How do we know that that's the case? I mean, does the behavior doesn't necessarily, does the behavior essentially point that, and can you tell us why? And what's the advantage to the, to the Iranians to break up a 
a state which, a few minutes ago, you said the one thing that everybody agrees on is no independent Kurdistan, which if you fracture the state, you'll have an independent Kurdistan. Well, first, I absolutely did not state that as irrefutable fact. I think I called it a provocative hypothesis. Uh, but I, I, I do think it's something to look at. Uh, what would be the rationale for it? Um, uh, to absolutely ensure that Iraq never again is a threat to Iran. Um, and a fragmented Iraq uh, uh, would, at least in a conventional sense, uh, never be a threat to Iran. Uh, uh, you would have, again, a jihadistan. Um, and uh, I, as I've suggested, I, I don't think Iran feels really threatened by Islamic State and vice versa. Uh, you would have a Shiistan that uh, would include most of uh, Iraq's oil that uh, uh, Iran could certainly find ways to profit from, uh, and a somewhat problematic Kurdistan. Uh, but what we have seen, of course, is Iranian influence in Kurdistan, and in that scenario, a kind of a, a um, uh, and, and long-term fragmentation, I think you'd expect to see even more influence in, in the Kurdish region, just so they would ensure that uh, uh, nothing really dangerous comes out of there. And I would imagine this is a subject to debate in Tehran. I mean, what do I know? We're not there. Uh, uh, so no, I don't, I don't set this out as uh, uh, an absolute fact, but I think it's worth thinking about, uh, given who some of the Iranian players are. Um, and as you correctly point out, while you cannot adduce motives purely from uh, what is happening on the ground, uh, it, it's still worth thinking about. Thank you. Um, Professor Davis at the back. Um, I'm taking names down, so I'll get to you in the, oh, sorry. And I've already got Barbara. But if we can send a mic that way as well. Yeah, yes, thanks, thanks Barbara. Uh, I'm Barbara Slavin, uh, and I run the Future of Iran Hi, I'm Barbara Slavin, and I run the Future of Iran Initiative at the Atlantic Council, so I thought I should come and see what the future of Iraq was going to be. Um, I'm shocked. Iran took advantage of the United States toppling a Sunni government in a country that had a Shia majority. <laughs> um, you know, reality intrudes here. Um, given, however, our own domestic situation, particularly our own domestic politics, how can you project that a future American administration is ever going to be willing to engage uh, troops, certainly, uh, or treasure in the way that we did over the past decade to reverse what looks like a pretty solid gain on the part of the Iranians in, in Iraq, uh, any more than we would go into Lebanon again with Marines to try to deal with Hezbollah. And I guess that's both to, well, it's to all three of you, actually. Thanks. I'll start. Uh, you've just uh, summarized the Obama administration argument to, uh, what do we call them? Uh, joint target uh, JTACs. You know, a few guys out there with radios. Uh, this is another going in with 100,000 troops. Uh, Barbara, how many uh, airplanes does Putin have in uh, the Middle East? That's right. They're doing a lot of. They're doing a lot of, from Putin's standpoint, really good work. How many people has he lost? I think we are up to two. 
maybe a few more on the ground. Uh, that's the kind of uh, deployment of power to achieve strategic ends that I admire. I don't admire his purposes, but I certainly admire the tradecraft. And that's the kind of thing I sense that most of the people that are making recommendations for the commitment of American forces are talking about. There are plenty of people in an 85% Sunni Middle East who are willing to stand up and fight against this Iranian offensive. They need assistance, they need weapons, they need leadership, they need air cover. That's what we're there for, potentially. I'll stop there. If I could just add to that, I think, you know, that we're, whenever we have this discussion, it's uh, continue to, we're doing what we're doing now, or it'll be thousands of troops, and, and it's a false choice. I mean, there is a way to do it. And it starts with, what are our national interests in the region, and how does Iraq fit into that? It'd be, it'd be pleasant to start with that question first and then devise a strategy, as I said at the outset, that matches ends, ways, and means. When you say you're going to destroy ISIS, destroy ISIS, but when you're, you're hitting them at six, seven targets a day and, a, and uh, you know, a small cadre of advisors that don't go to the front, some do, that's not going to destroy ISIS, okay? So it's, it's frustrating to hear the, the discourse on this, um, but I think it's, it's a... It's a Well, I mean, that, is it in our interest to do that? And what, what are our interests there? And then devise a strategy to do it. But it's gonna, it's, it has to start with U.S. interests, not as in a, in our, in a region, not as, a, as we'd wish it to be, but the situation on the ground that we find. Some of us would distinguish between Shia power, which is a majority, as you pointed out, and Iranian power in Iraq. Yeah, and I'd leave it at that. And that's that's the, yeah. the, the point I would uh, press. Uh, uh, unlike what some of our Arab friends believe, Shia does not equal Iranian. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, those of us who have been out there know how, what passionate Arab nationalists uh, uh, many Iraqi Shia are. Uh, uh, and so I, I would talk not about troops and treasure, I, I would talk about politics and diplomacy. Uh, uh, I have argued with this administration with a singular lack of success, most of my arguments with this administration meet with a singular lack of success, that, you know, don't send the 101st Airborne to Baghdad, send the Secretary of State uh, for a prolonged <coughs> seance uh, uh, with the Iraqi leadership to both assess and then to try to influence what, what, what deals can be done. Uh, uh, we have been sort of missing in in, in, in action uh, uh, politically and diplomatically, and, and that is where I would like to see the, the, the thrust of a renewed effort come. Uh, and here the Iranians uh, may actually help, because mm -hmm. if my uh, provocative hypothesis is anywhere near the mark, uh, well, that's war in another form. and as, at, at a certain point, you're probably going to get, in fact, you see it in some areas already, uh, an Iraqi Arab reaction to that. Um, you know, we, we saw Al-Qaeda's excesses uh, enable the surge through the awakening. Uh, they were their own worst enemy. I think Iranian overreach can uh, uh, potentially uh, deliver the same results. I think we need to be giving Abadi and others some alternative to Tehran, because right now there isn't. Um, 
but that, that needs to be political and diplomatic in the first instance. Yeah, and we're, and we're certainly not talking about rolling back Shia power in Baghdad. I mean, that's not anyone's goal. The point is just for those militias that have sprung up during this time of instability to be properly integrated into the country's armed forces and for Iraq's Sunni communities to have <coughs> enough of a seat at the table that they can go back to their constituencies and actually be able to deliver something once in a while. Thank you, sir. Uh, Eric Davis, Rutgers University. Uh, in the document I received um, from you, Orion, it was very exciting to see all the dimensions of this uh, future of Iraq Task Force. However, you are emphasizing the future, and I noticed one category that's not there, and that's the category of youth. 70% of the population is under the age of 30, 40% uh, is under the age of 15. We know that most of the violence uh, comes from the activities of youth, and we also know if we look at Iraqi civil society organizations, we see that the main drivers and most of the effective ones are youth. So how do we um, really integrate youth, not just sort of give them a kind of um, uh, off-the-cuff importance, but really since they're the generation in waiting, they're going to be taking over the new Iraq. And if you look at the education that they're receiving, it's very wanting because the school textbooks have been denuded of anything that uh, treats any Iraqi group uh, that they don't particularly like. So I'd like you to, to see what our panelists would say about how we deal with this very, very important demographic. Thank you. Uh, that, that's a great point, Eric. And let, let me just say generally, um, that, that was um, an illustrative menu, not a comprehensive checklist. And uh, what we're, we're certainly expecting for everyone that is associating with this effort is that kind of input. What else, you know, so that's what we came up with as a, uh, an initial draft. What else should be on that? Um, uh, so, so please give us that kind of feedback. Now, we tried to get at that. Uh, there is a reference to education in there uh, because it is so critical for, for the reasons you cite, the, uh, uh, the youth bulge and the way curriculum, curricula are being uh, 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 modified and altered. Um, so that uh, certainly is our intention, that that be part of it. Um, uh, but uh, certainly worth fleshing that out a bit. Um, uh, I'm on the board of uh, Mercy Corps International. That is something we, uh, that Mercy Corps does everywhere we're involved, is drill down on youth and education. Um, uh, because we have learned over the years how absolutely central that is to, uh, to long-term security and stability. And again, um, uh, a, um, a, a massive challenge. Uh, all of that said, and, and uh, my friend Rafiq Bizri knows this so, so well, um, there was a lot of speculation at the end of the active phase of the Lebanese Civil War in 1990 that 15 years of vicious conflict had produced an entire generation of Lebanese uh, who had no formal education and really only knew how to operate a Kalashnikov, and that that was going to be a recipe for long-term murder, mayhem, pillage, and plunder. Well, Lebanon still has its share of problems, but that didn't mature. That, that apocalyptic um, prediction did not pan out. Uh, that young Lebanese who, who may have literally grown up in militias, once they had an, alter an option to do something else, <coughs> dropped that gun 
and, and took that option. So yes, this, this is deserving of serious concern and serious attention. Uh, but um, also, I don't think we should, we should sell a young generation coming of age under horrific conditions too short. Uh, give them some alternatives, and I'll bet you they'll take them. Ambassador Simedai. Well, thank you very much for an excellent discussion. The panelists bring to the discussion a huge amount of experience, uh, insight, and wisdom. I'm uh, an admirer of each one of them. Uh, re they raised through this discussion a whole number of issues, uh, some extremely important, some central, and some of them uh, are better discussed in smaller circles than this bigger uh, gathering. But I just want to take one uh, strategic uh, issue which was touched upon, um, and that is the fact that there is an alliance of Iran, Russian, and Syria, Hezbollah, that is on a roll. It is actually making tremendous gains, and if things go the way they are, they are heading towards victory in their terms, to achieve their goals in the region. And we know that the Iranians and the Russians are good chess players. I'm not sure that as a political system, the American system is in that league in terms of chess, seeing so many moves ahead. Uh, the question I have here is, will the political system in this country, never mind the Middle East, produce the political will that will stop that will stop this advance not necessarily uh, 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 put down the shia and put up the Sun sunnis this is not really a solution that's a, just reversing the the uh, polarity of sectarianism does not solve anything it is uh, it is uh, unwinding this, uh, this tension which is necessary. But is anyone in this country with, with power and decision going to stand up and say to the Russians, thus far and no further? <laughs> stand up to the Iranians and say, thus far and no further. And allow the space for Iraqis and others in the region to uh, solve their problems, which are many, and they have so many challenges, as we know. Thank you. Thank you. Who wants to tackle that beast? <laughs> well, um, uh, it, it's a great point, and uh, you know, it's it's both heartwarming. It's heartwarming to, to see. All of you in this room, so many of you I, I know, have known over the years, and to think of the, the knowledge and expertise on Iraq and the region that you represent, uh, the kind of unsettling follow-on thought is uh, all of you in this room probably represent 
two-thirds of the Americans uh, in this country who really care about Iraq. So, um, Samir, you know us very, very well. Uh, Americans have tremendous qualities. We, we also have a few challenges, and, and one of them is what I call strategic patience. Uh, you know, we didn't build our great country on patience. Uh, get her done. Don't tell me about yesterday, I'm about today and tomorrow. Let's get on with it. And then if it gets messy, costly, difficult, heck, let's go on to something else and, and get that done instead. So, you know, we're, we're kind of genetically wired for let's fix it, let's fix it now. Well, you know, the Middle East is not a region that learn, lends itself to easy, quick fixes. Um, so that's a challenge for us. And of course, our political system uh, is also not geared to, you know, long-term policies. Um, uh, you know, policies change as the White House changes hands, as uh, the balance shifts in Congress. And, uh, you know, the, the example again is Iraq. In, in 2002, the American people, through their uh, representatives in Congress, basically voted to have a big old war in Iraq. Um, and then in 2006, the American people, through their elected representatives in Congress, voted not to have a big old war in Iraq. Uh, but you can't rewind the film. Uh, so this, this, you, you rightly put your finger on uh, a real challenge uh, for uh, the American public and for American policy. Now, in terms of the specific incident you cite, um, uh, clearly there were other policy alternatives open to this administration or any administration um, uh, uh, in Syria, in Iraq, vis-a-vis -vis Iran, <coughs> Uh, Bashar al-Assad or Moscow. Uh, um, I've suggested some of them. The administration has elected uh, basically to sit pretty tight. Um, but there's nothing in our system that, that would have prevented more robust actions. Um, uh, these are policy decisions, policies made at one end of Pennsylvania Avenue and it's resourced at the other. Uh, we diplomats and soldiers uh, don't make policy, we just kind of carry it out. Uh, so I think there were alternatives. One, I was recently out uh, in the Middle East, not in Iraq. Uh, the perception I found among people I've known for years, that the benign interpretation is that there is a, um, a Tehran, Damascus, Moscow axis um, in, in the face of which we are just passive. That's the charitable interpretation. The less charitable interpretation <laughs> is it is actually a Tehran, Damascus, Moscow, Washington axis. Uh, that by our inaction, we are really citing uh, uh, that we are uh, in effect accomplices. And I think that's quite dangerous. Uh, yeah, there's not going to be any kind of American intervention in the Middle East on the scale even remotely like that of the first 10 years of this century. Uh, I think that's pretty apparent. Uh, we barely got enough political support to do the first Gulf War, even though that didn't involve all of the downsides of Vietnam before and Iraq and Afghanistan after. <clears throat> and that was 20 years after Vietnam. So it takes a long time to uh, uh, do the same mistake again, even if it isn't a mistake. Uh, 
But uh, as I said, we're not talking about that level of effort to make a difference in the Middle East. We're talking about, again, you know, a Putin-esque 1,500-man expeditionary, maybe up to 2,500 now, expeditionary element. Uh, we've got 40 or 50,000 troops, and we've got 10,000 in Afghanistan alone. We've got 3,700 in uh, Iraq. We've got uh, three or 4,000 in Kuwait. I could go on and on. <coughs> we have him outnumbered about uh, 20 to 1. Uh, we're just not using them. Uh, and I could see a different administration, in fact, almost any of them from 1945 until either 2000 or 2008, uh, using those forces and providing a countervailing force. Whether we will arrive, we've had two administrations that have tried very different approaches to the old traditional work the problem slowly, and uh, we're, I don't think the American people by polls are happy with the results of either of them. And judging from uh, the campaign, uh, there aren't a whole lot of, there's nobody who's uh, really endorsing this administration's foreign policy, but uh, there aren't a whole lot of them endorsing uh, Ronald Reagan's or uh, even Bill Clinton. So we'll have to wait and see. Just one. Yes. Just, uh, I think uh, what, what you bring up is we are, are not very good at conflict resolution. Unless, if the NSAIDE has the terms unconditional and surrender, we're pretty good at that. You know, grant, yeah. World War II. Mm -hmm. But anything short of that, which mm -hmm. most of them uh, end up in that, we're not very, very good at that. So just from the past decade that we've talked about in our experience in Iraq, I'd be, I'd load, be loath to, to sign up for some open-ended turning back some axis of evil without a clearly defined end state and a definition of success. You know, we've just recalibrated our commitment to Afghanistan because we haven't done that adequately. So just from the sacrifice that we've all uh, seen firsthand, I'd be very reluctant to sign up for some great crusade uh, to turn back this axis unless we had a very clear strategy and definition of success to end it. Dr. Carthen. Thank you very much, and thanks for this panel. Uh, of course, uh, no one can assemble better experience speaking with, with the ambassador just said than what's on the panel, and you are lucky to be uh, supported by Nusaybe, one of the great Iraq experts. But let me ask about uh, methodology, approach, and uh, maybe the philosophy of the task force since we are launching a task force. It's been more about Iraq rather than what this task force is going to do. Now, this experience, which is great and coveted, uh, I, I think if it casts a very heavy shadow on the work of the task force, it might turn easily into hindrance. Uh, watching the talk, I still think that there is a lot of that experience is dictating what has been said on the panel today. No criticism. I'm an academic. This is annoying about people like me. So you have to take it, <laughs> both of you, I know. So, uh, but, but basically, I think that's very important. What is going to be new from, say, the Iraq study group, which I had the honor of talking to um, Secretary Panetta at the time about certain aspects of it. Are you listening to new people? Are you looking at the new realities in Iraq? Uh, you know, your experience, valuable as it is, 
uh, it is ri right now probably uh, part of what we study as historians versus what happened after June uh, 10, which is very important. What is going to be new here? Uh, when we talk about, just let me take one quick example because time is, is important and, and would like to hear about that. Um, uh, talking about the hashed, the, the PMUs, Still, we hear the word militias, for example, even the Iraqi government says they are not militias and they are part of this. The hashed general that used to, I mean, the elements of it that used to fight you in those days, uh, and also they were not supported by many Iraqis because their job was to terrorize many segments of Iraqi society. Nowadays, the, uh, their, popul their popularity is through the roof in uh, many uh, parts of Iraq. And I can tell you with the decline of the popularity of the establishment, the, the parties that ruled Iraq uh, historically since 2003, you know, there's a lot of change right now that I think needs that we have to force ourselves to forget the experience and use it just as a back uh, up and support rather than let it overcome or overshadow our work. And, and I think this is going to be maybe the, the, the pivot where, you know, where we're success and probably recreating another uh, Iraq study group report uh, will be there. And again, I would. I know both of you, I would love to talk to you about it in another time uh, ongoingly. But thank you for this excellent panel and wishing you all the success and luck. Thank you. Because we just have a few minutes left, I'm going to collect all the remaining questions I have, starting with Representative Bayan. Thank you. I'm Bayan Sami Abdurrahman, the Kurdistan Regional Government Representative to the U.S. Um, being Kurdish, inevitably, I'm going to talk about borders. Uh, Ambassador Crocker, you said that uh, these borders had uh, endured remarkably well, or some words to those effect. That's true, but at what cost? There has been genocide, chemical bombardment, war, bloodshed, repeatedly, and we're seeing it today in Iraq yet again. So I think we should stop thinking like 19th century men. Sykes-Picker were born in the 19th century. We are now in the 21st. President Barzani has declared a referendum. He hasn't declared independence. I'd just like to make that point. My question is really regarding Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the other Gulf countries. Today we've heard a lot about Iran, a little bit about Turkey. We haven't really heard about the Sunni Arab countries and what role you see for them in the future of Iraq. Um, Mr. Shokat? Can you see him over there? Towards the middle, of the, on the left. Uh, Ambassador Ryan, it has been a long time since I've seen you. I believe it was um, around 2002. Can you check that the microphone's on? Yeah. Great. It's okay. Smudar Shaukat, I was part of the Iraqi opposition, and then I was a former uh, Iraqi parliamentarian, and now I'm very active in the Arab Sunni cause uh, after the Daesh incursion. Uh, I've listened uh, to the excellent panel you have gathered, 
uh, I've listened to the general saying that in the past two or three years, the forces taking uh, Iraq apart are much greater than the forces that are putting, uh, wants to keep Iraq uh, together. I've listened to Ryan Crocker, Ambassador Crocker, uh, saying that we are looking at Daesh. It's a symptom. It's not the cause. I agree with you completely, Ambassador. We talked about the political solution before the military solution, General, because whatever force you mass, we have, as the Ambassador said, a real problem. In terms of carpet bombing and what uh, uh, I believe uh, what has come in the um, uh, Arms Senate Committee, uh, there has been carpet bombing. We have total destroyed Arab Sunni cities. Those that were not destroyed <coughs> by uh, the carpet bombing were destroyed by the militias as it happened in Tikrit. Beijing now they are dismantling um, all the refinery there is, uh, big trailers with Iranian plates, dismantling all the refinery back to the Iranian borders. The tragedy that has happened to the Iraqi Sunnis after 2003 is a, tragedy, is, a, is a tragedy that has never been talked about in the quarters in a proper manner. There is a genocide that is being committed against the Arab Sunnis in Iraq and maybe even in Syria. It doesn't matter which side you are. If you are against Saddam, you are a Sunni. If you are against Bashar al-Assad, you are a Sunni, and you've got to be taken out. Now, Ambassador, and that is the question. Have you thought about an SRG Sunni regional government of which, as an idea, it can make sure that Iraq stays together rather than torn apart. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you. Um, Mona, just here in the red top. Mona Alami, I'm a non-resident fellow with the Atlantic Council. Um, it was interesting to see that we've talked about how not, monolith how not monolith monolithic was the Shiite community and how the PMU is divided between pro-Iranian and more nationalistic uh, movements. Actually, uh, nationalistic movements with, my, with the PMU are greater in number but less trained and uh, are less financially rich than the Iranian PMU. So my question is wouldn't be interesting to look at empowering these movements that are Shiite, nationalistic, maybe to limit, it, to limit Iranian expansion? And how can the U.S. do that given the poor history it has with these parties, talking about the Sadrist movement and Sistani? Okay. Um, and there was just one more question. That gentleman on that side. Yeah, he's been waiting. Yeah, there we are. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Uh, Rabin Pasha, Middle East, Young Entrepreneur's Dreams. Um, I want to go back, actually, and uh, even hearing some of these questions about what will happen to the Sunni areas and hearing um, uh, Eric's question earlier. Uh, and uh, thinking of 
the example that was given about Lebanon and what it took to rebuild that country and some of the services that also Ambassador Jeffrey spoke about, the entrepreneurial spirit that brought back electricity in Baghdad and, and brought these communities together. As we look in Iraq and whether we talk about a future that includes multiple states and independent Kurdistan or not, ISIS, those areas under ISIS will be liberated. The people will have to go back in one way or another, two million people who have been displaced. The one thing that could unite and look into a future of Iraq is building upon and investing in that entrepreneurial spirit and the leadership development of youth, which has been completely neglected. And as we look at Iraq, and I was born there, I was raised there, um, I understand the Iraqi resilience both from being Kurdish Iraqi American and in the diaspora community and have gone back. And there's a huge level of disenfranchisement and a distrust of the Iraqi government, whether it comes back ever together to control those areas or not. So my question would be how do we in our current foreign policy as well as um, uh, broader diplomatic and development assistance assist in creating, recreating that sense of country ownership, entrepreneurial spirit that engages the young people in rebuilding their future. Whether they would be a part of one political thing or another, we really have to think about the trauma and retranslate that back into an economic productivity of rebuilding those communities. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm sorry I had a couple more on my list, but I think we have to leave it here. If you can just wrap up with your final remarks, each of you, starting with Ambassador Crocker. Well, trying to absorb um, uh, all of that. Uh, let, let me start with, uh, uh, Moeen, with you, because um, part of the what, what we're trying to do is something um, that is not just a repetition of everything that's been done before, and to do it in a way that, that is useful to those who are going to have to make decisions uh, uh, starting next January. The, the, the structure says a lot about it. Uh, you know, with, what, 25 um, uh, senior advisors representing, I can assure you, every conceivable uh, uh, point of view and, and uh, experiential basis uh, on Iraq, uh, there is going to be a, a lot of healthy debate and discussion. Um, and that's very important. The other thing that I said at the beginning, and this is very hard to do, uh, all of us involved in this, to the extent we possibly can, need to check our preconceptions at the door. Um, uh, to say, here's the issue. Let's drill down in it and let it, let it speak to us. Let it define itself rather than us trying to overlay our, our own preconceived definitions on whatever the issue is. Again, that's really hard to do. Actually, it's impossible to do, but you, you can check that tendency. And I, the worst mistakes I've made in my career have always involved letting my preconceptions uh, shape an objective reality. So uh, these, are, uh, these, these are very good cautions. Uh, uh, you did hear us pontificate because that's what happens when you're sitting up here, but I tried to say at the beginning that that's, you know, what, what this task force is about is discovering Iraqi realities first and then trying to come up with uh, constructive ways to deal with them, uh, not starting with the preconceptions and then adjusting facts to fit those. So, uh, again, it'll be an ongoing challenge, and I'm sure that uh, we will be getting your uh, refreshing academic critique as we proceed. So. <laughs> um, just very quickly on, on, on some of the other issues. Uh, 
yes, the, the, the question of uh, uh, Iraq's other neighbors, uh, particularly the Sunni Arabs, is a very important one. Uh, you know, we, we, we spent today talking a lot about Iran because that's obviously the, uh, the challenge of the hour. Uh, but that is our intention, to, to, to look at um, the complicated, not always discernible roles uh, the Arab states like Saudi Arabia, Jordan, UAE do play in Iraq. Uh, I got way more questions and I have even tentative answers now, but, but that is an important issue and, and, and we, will, uh, uh, we will get at it. Um, uh, let's see, what else do we need to talk about? Um, Munna's question about why don't we support the nationalistic militias who at the moment are only lesser. Yeah, that, 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 that's a great point. And again, it's a challenge for the task force. But, you know, who are these guys? As uh, Butch Cassidy, if you're old enough to remember, famously asked the Sundance kid, they, they rode through Bolivia, that, who are these guys? Uh, uh, who directs them? What motivates them? Um, uh, uh, understanding their reality and then coming up with some ideas uh, to how they might be uh, dealt with and, and possibly incorporated into uh, some state structure. Um, uh, keeping in mind a certain sense of humility here, it's not the United States who's going to do this. Uh, uh, but I think we can do some interesting, some useful analysis and then some suggestions, uh, both uh, to Iraqi authorities as well as our own. Um, and on entrepreneurship, I, you know, I, I really like that. Uh, you know, one of the things that has kept Lebanon going is its deeply rooted sense of personal entrepreneurship. Well, that's alive in Iraq as well. Uh, and if there is one thing that does unite Kurds, Arab Sunnis, and Arab Shia, it's that desire to, you know, go make a dinar. Um, I, you know, my, Last week in Iraq in early 2009, I, I took a walk through downtown Ramadi with Sheikh Abu Risha. And you know, the, the, the souk was bustling, you know, buyers and sellers everywhere. Uh, I went to a couple of shops who were selling housewares. Uh, and I just looked at them, they were made in Iran. Uh, and I said, so how do you get this stuff? I said, oh, uh, we got a middleman in Sadr City. And I said, you, you go to Sadr City? And they said, of course not. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we know of him. He's highly reliable. We get good prices, regular deliveries. Uh, we'll never meet him. Uh, but uh, it's great doing business with him. I mean, that spirit is everywhere out there. And that, that'll be something we look at. Uh, you know, how can the Iraqi state at least allow, if not encourage, Iraqis to do what they do very well, which is business. So, Thank you. Ambassador Jeffrey? Um, yeah. I'm a, you always, at the end, when you get this uh, flurry of questions, try to think of something intelligible or intelligent to say to kind of sum them all up. And I usually feel, but this time I'm going to try, but it'll be provocative. Uh, in looking at all these things, let's empower the people, uh, 70% under 20, let's find uh, the right militias, let's uh, do something about a uh, Kurdistan regional government for the Sunnis, let's uh, 
uh, find, uh, let me see, uh, missing one. But anyway, we've, we've heard a lot of these. Uh, here's the problem. None of this works in my experience. The assumption we're making is that Iraq is a supine patient that has turned him or herself over to a team of doctors and said, please do whatever you want, fix me, and then goes under. And that team of doctors, you got a blood pressure uh, guy, you've got a uh, blood sugar girl, you've got a heart specialist, you've got this and that, and they all sit together and have debates and work on things. We tried that. We were actually the team of doctors during the military period, to some degree, because we had this huge effort trying to deal with the patient. But Iraq, other than that brief period of time around the surge where a civil war was about to tear the country apart and people really felt that this could be disaster, I don't think has ever said, tell us what's wrong with us and we'll do what you say. Now the problem is, we hear every day when we're in Iraq, lots of people saying, tell us what's wrong and uh, you know, how to fix it and we'll follow you. But that was never deeply ingrained in the population, in the various groups. They were countervailing forces and antibodies against even our best suggestions. So what I would urge is, apart from the diplomatic and military, where we have a real role, uh, to look at those things that seem to be working, that seem to have buy-in, that seem to be really Iraqi. It can be the oil sector. It can be entrepreneurial electricity, it can be trading relationships throughout the region, and find ways to support that. But if we try to diagnose this patient and then find ways to fix it, <clears throat> it'll keep us busy, but it's not going to do anything for the patient. General Barbero? I'm good. Okay. Thank you very much. We've run a little bit over our time, so I need to wrap up. Thank you. Well, we got started late. Yeah, that's good. Thank you very much.